Chapter Fourteen, Part One of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Fourteen, Part One. Chiloé and Concepcion, Great Earthquake. San Carlos, Chiloé, Osorno in eruption, contemporaneously with Aconcagua and Coseguina. Ride to Cucao, impenetrable forests, Valdivia Indians, earthquake, Concepcion, great earthquake, rocks fissured, appearance of the former towns, the sea black and boiling, direction of the vibrations, stones twisted round, great wave, permanent elevation of the land, area of volcanic phenomena, the connection between the elevatory and eruptive forces, cause of earthquakes, slow elevation of mountain chains. On January the 15th we sailed from Lowe's Harbour, and three days afterwards anchored a second time in the Bay of San Carlos in Chiloé. On the night of the 19th the volcano of Osorno was in action. At midnight the sentry observed something like a large star, which gradually increased in size till about three o'clock, when it presented a very magnificent spectacle. By the aid of a glass, dark objects, in constant succession, were seen, in the midst of a great glare of red light, to be thrown up and to fall down. The light was sufficient to cast on the water a long bright reflection. Large masses of molten matter seem very commonly to be cast out of the craters in this part of the cordillera. I was assured that when the Corcovado is in eruption, great masses are projected upwards and are seen to burst in the air, assuming many fantastical forms, such as trees. Their size must be immense, for they can be distinguished from the high land behind San Carlos, which is no less than ninety-three miles from the Corcovado. In the morning the volcano became tranquil. I was surprised at hearing afterwards that Aconcagua, in Chile, 480 miles northwards, was an action on the same night, and still more surprised to hear that the great eruption of Conseguina, 2,700 miles north of Aconcagua, accompanied by an earthquake felt over 1,000 miles, also occurred within six hours of the same time. This coincidence is the more remarkable, as Conseguina had been dormant for 26 years, and Aconcagua most rarely shows any signs of action. It is difficult even to conjecture whether this coincidence was accidental or shows some subterranean connection. If Vesuvius, Etna, and Hecla in Iceland, all three relatively nearer each other than the corresponding points in South America, suddenly burst forth in eruption on the same night, the coincidence would be thought remarkable. But it is far more remarkable in this case, where the three vents fall on the same great mountain chain and where the vast plains along the entire eastern coast and the upraised recent shells along more than two thousand miles on the western coast show in how equable and connected a manner the elevatory forces have acted. Captain Fitzroy, being anxious that some bearings should be taken on the outer coast of Chiloé, it was planned that Mr. King and myself should ride to Castro, and thence across the island to the Capella de Cacao, situated on the west coast. Having hired horses and a guide, we set out on the morning of the 22nd. We had not proceeded far, before we were joined by a woman and two boys, who were bent on the same journey. Every one on this road acts on a hail-fellow-well-met fashion, and one may here enjoy the privilege, so rare in South America, of travelling without firearms. 
At first the country consisted of a succession of hills and valleys. Nearer to Castro it became very level. The road itself is a curious affair. It consists in its whole length, with the exception of very few parts, of great logs of wood, which are either broad and laid longitudinally, or narrow and placed transversely. In summer the road is not very bad, but in winter, when the wood is rendered slippery from rain, travelling is exceedingly difficult. At that time of the year the ground on each side becomes a morass and is often overflowed. Hence it is necessary that the longitudinal logs should be fastened down by transverse poles, which are pegged on each side into the earth. These pegs render a fall from a horse dangerous, as the chance of alighting on one of them is not small. It is remarkable, however, how active custom has made the Chilotan horses. In crossing bad parts where the logs had been displaced, they skipped from one to the other, almost with the quickness and certainty of a dog. On both hands the road is bordered by the lofty forest trees, with their bases matted together by canes. When occasionally a long reach of this avenue could be beheld, it presented a curious scene of uniformity. The white line of logs, narrowing in perspective, became hidden by the gloomy forest, or terminated in a zigzag which ascended some steep hill. Although the distance from San Carlos to Castro is only twelve leagues in a straight line, the formation of the road must have been a great labour. I was told that several people had formerly lost their lives in attempting to cross the forest. The first who succeeded was an Indian who cut his way through the canes in eight days and reached San Carlos. He was rewarded by the Spanish government with a grant of land. During the summer many of the Indians wander about the forests, but chiefly in the higher parts where the woods are not quite so thick in search of the half-wild cattle which live on the leaves of the cane and certain trees. It was one of these huntsmen who by chance discovered, a few years since, an English vessel which had been wrecked on the outer coast. The crew were beginning to fail in provisions, and it is not probable that, without the aid of this man, they would ever have extricated themselves from these scarcely penetrable woods. As it was, one seaman died on the march from fatigue. The Indians in these excursions steer by the sun, so that if there is a continuance of cloudy weather they cannot travel. The day was beautiful, and the number of trees which were in full flower perfumed the air. Yet even this could hardly dissipate the effects of the gloomy dampness of the forest. Moreover, the many dead trunks that stand like skeletons never failed to give to these primeval woods a character of solemnity, absent in those of countries long civilized. Shortly after sunset we bivouacked for the night. Our female companion, who was rather good-looking, belonged to one of the most respectable families in Castro. She rode, however, astride and without shoes or stockings. I was surprised at the total want of pride shown by her and her brother. They brought food with them, but at all our meals sat watching Mr. King and myself whilst eating, till we were fairly shamed into feeding the whole party. The night was cloudless and while lying in our beds we enjoyed the sight, and it is a high enjoyment, of the multitude of stars which illumined the darkness of the forest. January 23rd We rose early in the morning and reached the pretty quiet town of Castro by two o'clock. The old governor had died since our last visit, and a Chileno was acting his place. We had a letter of introduction to Don Pedro, whom we found exceedingly hospitable and kind, and more disinterested than is usual on this side of the continent. The next day Don Pedro procured us fresh horses, and offered to accompany us himself. We proceeded to the south, generally following the coast, and passing through several hamlets, 
each with its large barn-like chapel built of wood. At Villipili, Don Pedro asked the commandant to give us a guide to Cucao. The old gentleman offered to come himself, but for a long time nothing would persuade him that two Englishmen really wished to go to such an out-of-the-way place as Cucao. We were thus accompanied by the two greatest aristocrats in the country, as was plainly to be seen in the manner of all the poorer Indians towards them. At Chonchi we struck across the island, following intricate winding paths, sometimes passing through magnificent forests, and sometimes through pretty cleared spots, abounding with corn and potato crops. This undulating woody country, partially cultivated, reminded me of the wilder parts of England, and therefore had to my eye a most fascinating aspect. At Velinco, which is situated on the borders of the lake of Cocao, only a few fields were cleared, and all the inhabitants appeared to be Indians. This lake is twelve miles long, and runs in an east and west direction. From local circumstances, the sea breeze blows very regularly during the day, and during the night it falls calm. This has given rise to strange exaggerations, for the phenomenon, as described to us at San Carlos, was quite a prodigy. The road to Cacao was so very bad that we determined to embark in a periagua. The commandant, in the most authoritative manner, ordered six Indians to get ready to pull us over, without deigning to tell them whether they would be paid. The periagua is a strange rough boat, but the crew were still stranger. I doubt if six uglier little men ever got into a boat together. They pulled, however, very well and cheerfully. The stroke oarsman gabbled Indian and uttered strange cries, much after the fashion of a pig-driver driving his pigs. We started with a light breeze against us, but yet reached the Capella de Cucao before it was laid. The country on each side of the lake was one unbroken forest. In the same Paragua with us a cow was embarked. To get so large an animal into a small boat appears at first a difficulty, but the Indians managed it in a minute. They brought the cow alongside the boat, which was heeled towards her, then, placing two oars under her belly, with her ends resting on the gunwale, by the aid of these levers, they fairly tumbled the poor beast, heels over head, into the bottom of the boat, and then lashed her down with ropes. At Cucao we found an uninhabited hovel, which is the residence of the padre when he pays his capella a visit, where, lighting a fire, we cooked our supper, and were very comfortable. The district of Cucao is the only inhabited part on the whole west coast of Chiloe. It contains about thirty or forty Indian families, who are scattered along four or five miles of the shore. They are very much secluded from the rest of Chiloe, and have scarcely any sort of commerce, except sometimes in the little oil, which they get from seal-blubber. They are tolerably dressed in clothes of their own manufacture, and they have plenty to eat. They seemed, however, discontented, yet humble to a degree which was quite painful to witness. These feelings are, I think, chiefly to be attributed to the harsh and authoritative manner in which they are treated by their rulers. Our companions, although so very civil to us, behave to the poor Indians as if they had been slaves rather than free men. They ordered provisions and the use of their horses without even condescending to say how much, or indeed whether the owners should be paid at all. In the morning, being left alone with these poor people, we soon ingratiated ourselves by presence of cigars and mate. A lump of white sugar was divided between all present, and tasted with the greatest curiosity. The Indians ended all their complaints by saying, "'And it is only because we are poor Indians, and know nothing, but it was not so when we had a king.'" 
The next day after breakfast we rode a few miles northward to Punta Huantamo. The road lay along a very broad beach, on which, even after so many fine days, a terrible surf was breaking. I was assured that after a heavy gale the roar can be heard at night even at Castro, a distance of no less than twenty-one sea-miles across a hilly and wooded country. We had some difficulty in reaching the point, owing to the intolerably bad paths, for everywhere in the shade the ground soon becomes a perfect quagmire. The point itself is a bold, rocky hill. It is covered by a plant allied, I believe, to bromelia, and called by the inhabitants Chipones. In scrambling through the beds our hands were very much scratched. I was amused by observing the precaution our Indian guide took in turning up his trousers, thinking that they were more delicate than his own hard skin. This plant bears a fruit in shape like an artichoke, in which a number of seed-vessels are packed. These contain a pleasant sweet pulp, here much esteemed. I saw at Lowe's Harbour the Chilotans making chichi, or cider, with this fruit. So true is it, as Humboldt remarks, that almost everywhere man finds means of preparing some kind of beverage from the vegetable kingdom. The savages, however, of Tierra del Fuego, and I believe of Australia, have not advanced thus far in the arts. The coast to the north of Punta Huntamo is exceedingly rugged and broken, and is fronted by many breakers, on which the sea is eternally roaring. Mr. King and myself were anxious to return, if it had been possible, on foot along this coast, but even the Indians said it was quite impracticable. We were told that men have crossed by striking directly through the woods from Cucao to San Carlos, but never by the coast. On these expeditions the Indians carry with them only roasted corn, and of this they eat sparingly twice a day. 26. Re-embarking in the Piragua, we returned across the lake, and then mounted our horses. The whole of Chiloe took advantage of this week of unusually fine weather, to clear the ground by burning. In every direction volumes of smoke were curling upwards. Although the inhabitants were so assiduous in setting fire to every part of the wood, yet I did not see a single fire which they had succeeded in making extensive. We dined with our friend the commandant, and did not reach Castro till after dark. The next morning we started very early. After having ridden for some time, we obtained from the brow of a steep hill an extensive view, and it is a rare thing on this road, of the great forest. Over the horizon of trees, the volcano of Corcovado and the great flat-topped one to the north stood out in proud preeminence. Scarcely another peak in a long range showed its snowy summit. I hope it will be long before I forget this farewell view of the magnificent Cordillera fronting Chiloe. At night we bivouacked under a cloudless sky, and the next morning reached San Carlos. We arrived on the right day for before evening heavy rain commenced. February 4th. Sailed from Chiloe. During the last week I made several short excursions. One was to examine a great bed of now-existing shells, elevated 350 feet above the level of the sea. From among these shells large forest trees were growing. Another ride was to P. Huichucucui. I had with me a guide who knew the country far too well for he would pertinaciously tell me endless Indian names for every little point, rivulet, and creek. In the same manner as in Tierra del Fuego, the Indian language appears singularly well adapted for attaching names to the most trivial features of the land. I believe everyone was glad to say farewell to Chiloe, yet if we could forget the gloom and ceaseless rain of winter, 
Chiloe might pass for a charming island. There is also something very attractive in the simplicity and humble politeness of the poor inhabitants. We steered northward along shore, but owing to thick weather we did not reach Valdivia till the night of the 8th. The next morning the boat proceeded to the town, which is distant about ten miles. We followed the course of the river, occasionally passing a few hovels and patches of ground cleared out of the otherwise unbroken forest, and sometimes meeting a canoe with an Indian family. The town is situated on the low banks of the stream, and is so completely buried in a wood of apple-trees that the streets are merely paths in an orchard. I have never seen any country where apple-trees appear to thrive so well as in this damp part of South America. On the borders of the roads there were many young trees evidently self-grown. In Chiloe the inhabitants possess a marvellously short method of making an orchard. At the lower part of almost every branch small, conical, brown, wrinkled points project. These are always ready to change into roots, as may sometimes be seen where any mud has been accidentally splashed against the tree. A branch as thick as a man's thigh is chosen in the early spring, and is cut off just beneath a group of these points. All the smaller branches are lopped off, and it is then placed about two feet deep in the ground. During the ensuing summer the stump throws out long shoots, and sometimes even bears fruit. I was shown one which had produced as many as twenty-three apples, but this was thought very unusual. In the third season the stump is changed, as I have myself seen, into a well-wooded tree loaded with fruit. An old man near Valdivia illustrated his motto, Necessidad des la madre de la invención, by giving an account of the several useful things he manufactured from his apples. After making cider, and likewise wine, he extracted from the refuse a white and finely flavoured spirit. By another process he procured a sweet treacle, or, as he called it, honey. His children and pigs seemed almost to live, during this season of the year, in his orchard. February 11th I set out with a guide on a short ride, in which, however, I managed to see singularly little, either of the geology of the country or of its inhabitants. There is not much cleared land near Valdivia. After crossing a river at the distance of a few miles, we entered the forest, and then passed only one miserable hovel before reaching our sleeping place for the night. The short difference in latitude of 150 miles has given a new aspect to the forest compared with that of Chiloe. This is owing to a slightly different proportion in the kinds of trees. The evergreens do not appear to be quite so numerous, and the forest in consequence has a brighter tint. As in Chiloe, the lower parts are matted together by canes. Here also another kind, resembling the bamboo of Brazil and about twenty feet in height, grows in clusters and ornaments the banks of some of the streams in a very pretty manner. It is with this plant that the Indians make their chuzos, or long tapering spears. Our resting-house was so dirty that I preferred sleeping outside. On these journeys the first night is generally very uncomfortable, because one is not accustomed to the tickling and biting of the fleas. I am sure, in the morning, there was not a space on my legs the size of a shilling which had not its little red mark where the flea had feasted. Twelfth. We continued to ride through the uncleared forest, only occasionally meeting an Indian on horseback, or a troop of fine mules bringing alecha planks and corn from the southern plains. In the afternoon one of the horses knocked up, who we were then on a brow of a hill, which commanded a fine view of the Llanos. The view of these open plains was very refreshing, after being hemmed in and buried in the wilderness of trees. The uniformity of a forest soon becomes very wearisome. 
This west coast makes me remember with pleasure the free, unbounded plains of Patagonia. Yet, with a true spirit of contradiction, I cannot forget how sublime is the silence of the forest. The Llanos are the most fertile and thickly peopled parts of the country, as they possess the immense advantage of being nearly free from trees. Before leaving the forest we crossed some flat little lawns, around which single trees stood, as in an English park. I have often noticed with surprise, in wooded, undulatory districts, that the quite level parts have been destitute of trees. On account of the tired horse, I determined to stop at the mission of Kudiko, to the friar of which I had a letter of introduction. Kudiko is an intermediate district between the forest and the Llanos. There are a good many cottages, with patches of corn and potatoes, nearly all belonging to Indians. The tribes dependent on Valdivia are reducidos y cristianos the indians farther northward about arauco and imperial are still very wild and not converted but they have all much intercourse with the spaniards the padre said that the christian indians did not much like coming to mass but that otherwise they showed respect for religion the greatest difficulty is in making them observe the ceremonies of marriage the wild indians take as many wives as they can support and a cacique will sometimes have more than ten. On entering his house, the number may be told by that of the separate fires. Each wife lives a week in turn with the cacique, but all are employed in weaving ponchos, etc., for his profit. To be the wife of a cacique is an honour much sought after by the Indian women. The men of all these tribes wear a coarse woollen poncho. Those south of Valdivia wear short trousers, and those north of it a petticoat, like the chilipa of the gauchos. All have their long hair bound by a scarlet fillet, but with no other covering on their heads. These Indians are good-sized men, their cheekbones are prominent, and in general appearance they resemble the great American family to which they belong. But their physiognomy seemed to me to be slightly different from that of any other tribe which I had before seen. Their expression is generally grave, and even austere, and possesses much character. This may pass either for honest bluntness or fierce determination. The long black hair, the grave and much-lined features, and the dark complexion called to my mind old portraits of James I. On the road we met with none of that humble politeness so universal in Chiloe. Some gave their mari-mari, good morning, with promptness, but the greater number did not seem inclined to offer any salute. This independence of manners is probably a consequence of their long wars, and the repeated victories which they alone, of all the tribes in America, have gained over the Spaniards. I spent the evening very pleasantly, talking with the padre. He was exceedingly kind and hospitable, and, coming from Santiago, had contrived to surround himself with some few comforts. Being a man of some little education, he bitterly complained of the total want of society. With no particular zeal for religion, no business or pursuit, how completely must this man's life be wasted! The next day, on our return, we met seven very wild-looking Indians, of whom some were caciques that had just received from the Chilean government their yearly small stipend for having long remained faithful. They were fine-looking men, and they rode one after the other, with most gloomy faces. An old cacique, who headed them, had been, I suppose, more excessively drunk than the rest, for he seemed extremely grave and very crabbed. Shortly before this, two Indians joined us, who were travelling from a distant mission to Valdivia concerning some lawsuit. One was a good-humoured old man, but from his wrinkled beardless face looked more like an old woman than a man. I frequently presented both of them with cigars, and, though ready to receive them, 
and I dare say grateful, they would hardly condescend to thank me. A Chilotan Indian would have taken off his hat and given his Dios le page. The travelling was very tedious, both from the badness of the roads and from the number of great fallen trees which it was necessary either to leap over or to avoid by making long circuits. We slept on the road, and next morning reached Valdivia, whence I proceeded on board. A few days afterwards I crossed the bay with a party of officers, and landed near the fort called Niebla. The buildings were in a most ruinous state, and the gun carriages quite rotten. Mr. Wickham remarked to the commanding officer that with one discharge they would certainly all fall to pieces. The poor man, trying to put a good face upon it, gravely replied, "'No, I am sure, sir, they would stand too.' The Spaniards must have intended to have made this place impregnable. There is now lying in the middle of the courtyard a little mountain of mortar, which rivals in hardness the rock on which it is placed. It was brought from Chile, and cost seven thousand dollars. The revolution having broken out, prevented its being applied to any purpose, and now it remains a monument of the fallen greatness of Spain. I wanted to go to a house about a mile and a half distant, but my guide said it was quite impossible to penetrate the wood in a straight line. He offered, however, to lead me, by following obscure cattle tracks, the shortest way. The walk, nevertheless, took no less than three hours. This man is employed in hunting straight cattle, yet, well as he must know the woods, he was not long since lost for two whole days and had nothing to eat. These facts convey a good idea of the impracticability of the forests of these countries. A question often occurred to me. How long does any vestige of a fallen tree remain? This man showed me one which a party of fugitive royalists had cut down fourteen years ago, and taking this as a criterion, I should think a bowl a foot and a half in diameter would in thirty years be changed into a heap of mould. End of chapter 14, part 1